Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, 751. We always knew that there was graves here. The identification of up to 751 unmarked graves at the Merivale Residential School in Saskatchewan raises urgent new questions. How many more will there be? Who will be held accountable? We'll speak with the Cowess's First Nation Chief, Cadmus Delorme, and Roseanne Archibald, an Assembly of First Nations National Chief candidate, about what needs to happen now. And the Minister of Northern Affairs, Dan Vandell, joins us. Then, papal apology. I have spoken personally, directly, uh, with His Holiness Pope Francis to impress upon him how important it is, not just that he makes an apology, but that he makes an apology to Indigenous Canadians on, uh, on Canadian soil. Will the Pope finally publicly apologize for the church's role in running the residential institutions? And will the church release all the records their organizations hold? We'll speak with Archbishop Richard Gagnon, the president of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. And racist text. To receive a message that was laced with racism, misogyny um, from the minister. Should Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, resign after sending an offensive note to the former Minister of Justice? Jody Wilson-Raybould joins us on that and more. Plus, what are the battle lines in a possible federal election? The Scrum will dig into the race to come. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. 215, 751. Those are no longer just numbers. Those represent Indigenous children, students, taken from their families, ripped from their culture, and found in unmarked graves. And that number will grow. Not long ago, 215 remains of children found in the Kamloops Residential Institution in BC. And this week, 751 unmarked graves discovered at the site of the former Merivale Indian Residential School, located 164 kilometers east of Regina, Saskatchewan. Any abuse that, that uh, anybody talks about, it's true. It still hurts. You know, I took lots of health, you know, wellness courses over the years, but that pain will never go away. The pain and trauma endured in that school still haunts survivors to this day. The Cowess's First Nation has known for decades that people were buried in unmarked sites where the residential school once stood, but will the Pope apologize for what happened there? What would an apology mean and how can the federal government and the Catholic Church be held accountable? Joining me now, Cowess's First Nations Chief Cadmus DeLorme, and Roseanne Archibald is the Assembly of First Nations National Chief Candidate. She just completed her term as the Regional Chief of Ontario. Um, difficult days, but I really appreciate both of you joining us. Uh, Chief DeLorme, I gotta start with you, obviously. Um, it's your community where the Merivale Residential School is located. The country watched you at those press conferences in this past week. Um, obviously, the community is like the rest of the country in kind of a state of horror about all this, although not surprised. You tell us how, you know, June 2nd when you started the deep ground radar, what you expected to find and if anything actually has, has uh, surprised you about what you found. Thanks, Evan. We, we had this in the planning for two years and with COVID last year, we, we asked our technicians to, to hold off a year. There was no vaccine yet. 
Uh, we were going to start June 2nd, and uh, the Kamloops um, Residential School 215 uh, graves found, um, you know, triggered myself, my community, uh, survivors of Maryville, uh, as well as many others across this country. And we were like, well, we're starting ours next week. What What are we, what are, what are we looking at? And, you know, I grew up on houses. I, I was told as a kid, don't walk over here. There's unmarked graves. Stay on the path. And so we, we bought 200 flags um, and we, we started and we did maybe a quarter of, quarter of our 44,000 square meters area. We, we delegated as phase one and we ran out of flags. And uh, as we went on, we kept hitting, hitting, hitting. And um, as of uh, three days ago, we were at 761 hits. And, um, you know, the flags were all over and uh, in order. This is not a mass grave site. This is just unmarked graves. And um, we just said we got to tell the people, we got to tell the community, and then we got to share it with all of our friends and family in Canada across and, and internationally. I want to go over to um, Roseanne Archibald. Uh, you're, you're in Ontario. I know Ontario has now committed $10 million provincially alongside the federal government's $27 million to identify more. But your reaction, now you've had Kamloops, 215. Um, the 751 are now, as Chief DeLorme has said, to 761. Possibly more hits and, and these um, unmarked graves. Um, how many more sites do you think ought to be investigated and how many more sites of unmarked graves do you think we will discover, Roseanne Archibald? Well, first of all, I want to give my condolences to Chief Delorme and his community. Um, these are children. We have to remember that these are somebody's babies, that they were loved, that they were cherished, and that they didn't go home. And also we have to recognize that every community that had a residential school has this terrible legacy. Uh, the chief just talked about already being told as a kid, don't walk in that area. I mean, these are, are issues that have been hanging over communities that have had residential schools in their communities, and they've known about it. Everybody has known. We have known for a long time. It's just coming to light for other people. And we will find unmarked graves in every residential school across this country. And we have to really be cognizant, again, that these are little innocent children. These children did nothing wrong. These children did not deserve to die in residential school and be buried in unmarked graves. That's what I think is important as we move forward is that we all, as I said on the last time I talked to you, Evan, we all are awake and we must stay awake and aware of what is happening to us and what has happened to us and find that path forward for healing. That's the most important thing is that we together begin to heal ourselves as First Nations people and that we ask Canadians to heal as well for the atrocities that were committed at residential mm. schools. And we are calling it genocide. We have always called it genocide. And I want people to start recognizing that it is genocide. When you're talking about 751 little innocent children being found in unmarked graves, that is genocide. Part of the healing that you mentioned, um, and I'll go back to Chief DeLorme, it means accountability. Accountability for the government, accountability for the church who ran that school. Um, from an accountability, a justice point of view, Chief, 
what do you need, what needs to happen now from the federal government and what needs to happen from the Catholic Church? Thank you, Evan. I, I just want to, to mention it is 751. I, I mentioned 761 earlier. My apologies. The 751 hits um, is truth. Uh, this machine that we use has a 10% error. Um, I'm not saying that any of these were errors, but we, we um, did uh, as technically as we can and let the technicians do what they had to do. The first thing that has to happen is an apology has to come from the Pope. It was a priest who had the authority to decide who shall and shall not be in this gravesite. From 1886 to 1970, this gravesite was the Roman Catholic gravesite. The Roman Catholic Church overseen the Merville Residential School. And so they had the responsibility and decision-making uh, power. The Pope apologizing is going to put a little bit of the mental, emotional, psychological part at peace for survivors that are listening and survivor and friends and families of survivors. Roseanne Archibald, please weigh in on that. From, from the accountability question, because uh, I know Chief Bobby Cameron from the FSIN in Saskatchewan said to me, there are priests and there are nuns who uh, perpetrated crimes that are still alive and there hasn't been charges. What's your sense of the, the need for accountability and for justice? Well, I echo the calls from Chief Delorme that the Pope must apologize. And also the government of Canada has to implement the 94 calls to action under the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Only 10 of those have been implemented in six years. A part of that is teaching people about this. A lot of people on social media that I'm reading are like, oh, I had no idea. What do I do now? You know, people are really reeling because they had no clue that right. genocide had occurred in Canada. So that's what governments need to do. They need to teach every citizen about what has happened in Canada. Cowboys' First Nations Chief, Cadmus DeLorme. Um, Roseanne Archibald is the Assembly of First Nations National Chief Candidate uh, later in July. I, I appreciate both of you taking the time this morning. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank Take you, care. All right, coming up, federal accountability with this newest horrific discovery in Saskatchewan and more expected, what federal action will be taken to help the process of discovery? How will the records from the churches be secured? Northern Affairs Minister Dan Vandell joins us next with some answers. Stay right here with Question Period. They found us. What that means is many families can heal. Many families can have closure. They found us. Chief Bobby Cameron of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous First Nations in Saskatchewan captured the human truth of the 751 unmarked graves found at the Merivale Residential School in Saskatchewan. These are human voices, mostly children, crying out to be heard, to be identified, to be reunited with their families. Chief Cameron called it a crime against humanity, and that demands justice and accountability. But who actually will be held accountable for taking Indigenous children from their families and their culture for the years of physical and sexual abuse? Several Indigenous groups are now calling for an independent inquiry. So, will the federal government commit more money to help Indigenous communities search these sites? And will there ever be charges laid for these crimes? 
We're now joined by Dan Vendel. He is the Minister of Northern Affairs. Minister, a very difficult week. I appreciate you joining us. Um, there's grieving that's been going on for generations, often ignored. Now the country can't ignore it. I know the federal government, after the discovery in Kamloops of the 215 remains of children there, finally released the $27 million to indigenous communities to help uh, search for unmarked graves. That was initially allocated, by the way, in 2019. Many chiefs say it's not enough. Is more money on the way? Thank you, Evan. And first of all, let me just say that our heart absolutely breaks for Kawasis uh, uh, First Nation and for all Indigenous communities across uh, the country. Uh, our country is really mourning the loss of innocent kids uh, at residential schools. Uh, this can best be called an atrocity, uh, and, uh, and, and it's a Canadian atrocity. So. We need to uh, we need to work with Indigenous nations. Uh, a, we need to accept responsibility, which we have, uh, and we need to pursue accountability, uh, which uh, which which we're, we we're, we're working on. And uh, most important of all, we need to make sure that, that change happens, and and uh, we need to make sure that that these atrocities can never ever occur right. again. You mentioned the word accountability. Chief Cameron of the FSIN told me that many people who perpetrated the crimes at residential institutions are still alive. Will there be any charges? Is the federal government, is the RCMP doing anything to pursue the perpetrators and finally get some justice? Listen, uh, we're taking a whole of government approach uh, to this, obviously. Uh, I know uh, Minister Miller, uh, Minister Bennett, uh, Minister Lametti are, are, are actively engaged as I am. And I think if, if this obviously was a, was a crime scene, uh, those poor children, those poor families, how did they die? Did they suffer? I mean, those are all unknowns. Those are all in unknowns. And, and the TRC report again uh, forewarned us that the estimated number of missing children from residential schools was, was quite low. And it's going to be, uh, the sad part is there's going to be more of these, uh, of, of these uh, uh, discoveries. I, 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 I hesitate to call them discoveries because it seems like many people knew about it. So is there going to be more, is there going to be people charged? I really don't know But sir, uh, at sir, this re point. Re respectfully, Minister, we do know, actually. Uh, in, during the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, the federal government then actually located more than 5,300 alleged abusers in the residential school system, employees and students. The government actually at the time, the federal government, had paid what we understand is 17 private investigators to locate them. It cost the federal government $1.5 million and it began in 2005. So where is that list of the 5,300 alleged uh, abusers. Why are there no criminal charges? I mean, back then they weren't there. They didn't contact them to bring criminal charges there. It was part of the settlement agreement. But now you've got a list. The federal government must have that list. Where is it? Are those people going to be charged? What happened? Evan, Evan, this, the information you've just shared is new to me. Uh, obviously, I think if, if people were still alive that were responsible for the crimes committed, of course they need to be charged. This, this was... Uh, this is the sort of thing you read about in another country. You don't read about this in Canada. But if, if, if people are still alive, then we need to do all things necessary to, to achieve justice. Right. Of course we need to bring charges forward. Right. But, but all of the information that you just mentioned to me is new to me. So I, 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 I really, you know, I, I, 
we need to, to look at this in a profound way. We need to look at this in a, from a whole-of-government approach. Respectfully, uh, reports of what I've just told you go back to 2016 when that report first came out and, and your government was in power then. So I'm, I'm a little surprised that it's all new. But So I, I'll, we'll try to follow up on what happened in the list. Um, Okay, your colleague, the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, Carolyn Bennett, is facing calls to resign, as you know, after linking Jody Wilson-Raybould and a tweet she made about the residential school tragedy with pension eligibility. Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former uh, Attorney General and the first Indigenous Attorney General, who will join us later on this program, called Carolyn Bennett's uh, comment or racist. She told me she was floored by it. Uh, because it suggested that she was only interested in money, not in actual justice. Bennett apologized. I'm asking you, do you think it was a racist text from Caroline Bennett? You know what, Evan? Uh, Minister Bennett uh, has apologized to, uh, to, to MP Wilson-Raybould for her comment. She deeply regrets her comment, and, and I, think, uh, I think this should end here. This is really one of the, the saddest... We, we need to focus on providing support and help uh, to to indigenous nations that are suffering through uh, uh, through this uh, the, the missing children that were uh, the grave sites. I mean, this is not a time to really focus on uh, on on other issues. I think that but that's not. But respectfully, but respectfully, she's the crown indigenous minister who sent a text. And that, she's apologized. She's apologized. Okay, but, and but, she, but, but I know. But the question is, is that enough? Apologized personally. She's apologized publicly. I'm not sure. Uh, I believe uh, uh, MP Wilson-Raybould accepts those no, apologies. I, no, to be fair, I, I, I talked to Jody Wilson-Raybould. She said she hopes it's authentic. She never said she accepted it. But my, I guess the, the political implications, sir, are has the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations lost credibility to perform her job, especially at this sensitive time? Minister Bennett has apologized privately and publicly. She deeply regrets the comments she made and that uh, this should be a day to focus on, on the victims of the residential schools, not a day to, to, to focus on, on a, a, a Twitter dispute. Minister of Northern Affairs, Dan Vandell, a very difficult week and more, more difficult days ahead. There will be, um, tragically, more discoveries like this. I do appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. Coming up. Papal apology calls are growing louder for the Pope to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in the residential school system. Will the church finally hand over all historic records needed to identify the remains? We'll speak with the president of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, Archbishop Richard Gagnon next. Stay right here with Question Period. So will the Pope publicly and formally apologize for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's residential school system. That pressure is now growing after approximately 751 unmarked graves were discovered at the former Merivale Indian Residential School site in Saskatchewan, reopening a wound for many survivors across the country. The Roman Catholic Church is international and they have a leader and that is the Pope. And an apology from the Pope would help in our healing, because an apology is an acceptance. This discovery follows a similar finding just a month at the former Kamloops Residential School, where the remains of 215 children were found. And more unmarked graves, as we know, are expected to be uncovered, leading to questions over who will be held accountable for these crimes. Is an apology from the Pope coming? And what about releasing school records to help bring the lost loved ones home? Let's find out. 
Joining me now is Archbishop Richard Genya of the Winnipeg Diocese. He's also the president of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. Archbishop, a pleasure to have you on the program. We appreciate it very much. Um, you know that the Catholic Church ran the majority of the residential schools in Canada, including the one, the Merivale Residential Institute, where the 751 unmarked graves have just been found. Will the Catholic Church turn over all the records in that school and others immediately? Thank you uh, for the question. Um, uh, we're speaking here of the various uh, dioceses and religious orders who were either directly or indirectly involved with religious, with the residential schools historically. And so when you speak of uh, files or you're speaking of dossiers, things like that, uh, that would be in the possession of the religious orders who actually taught in the schools and to a lesser degree in the dioceses. And um, I believe that uh, with the Indian Residential School Agreement, which involved those entities, uh, there was uh, agreement to turn over the files and dossiers uh, to the TRC. But Archbishop, uh, forgive me, you realize we've got 751 unmarked graves. We've got a generation of kids who were in schools run by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I appreciate we're trying to get accountability for crimes committed. And every time there's, it does sound like I, I get the hierarchy, but it does sound, start to sound like a bit of a shell game. Oh, we don't have those records. That's the order. They ran it. These were all run, sir, by the Catholic Church. Why can't the archbishop say to all the orders, turn over the documents. Otherwise, it just seems it's, 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 it's chasing shadows here and people's lives are at stake. Well, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm deflecting your question, but the church is not organized in the way that you're describing. You know, the dioceses are autonomous realities and so are the religious orders. So the existence of a, re a residential school in a given diocese was there uh, with the permission of the diocese and with the government to establish those schools. But the running of the schools, the diocese had very little to do with it, nor did the bishop. But forgive me, sir, but does that, does that alleviate the bishops and the church and the Vatican from a responsibility? Is that what you're saying, that they don't have responsibility because they didn't run them? It was highly decentralized. I was trying to make that point to you. It's not one big, one big entity as you think it is. I just want to make that point because that explains why the files, it's not so simple to say the Catholic Church is holding all these files. It's not quite that way. So, I mean, people are doing what they possibly can. And I think, you know, I think that the, the, uh, the TRC needs to, and I'm sure they are in some cases, to deal directly with the religious orders that have these files. And Archbishop, I, I'm not going to... It's way over my head to debate theology and church hierarchy with you, but I would say this. Uh, when the Vatican and the central authorities are making theological decisions, the orders follow them. So I know you talk about something's decentralized, but when it comes to church doctrine, it sure seems very centralized. And then when it comes to accountability on residential school, it sure seems decentralized. Well, if I may say, Evan, I don't know how far you want to go into this, but the, the, the Catholic faith is one thing. But the Catholic churches, the entities that operate on the ground, those are highly decentralized realities are called dioceses of churches. So the faith, there's one faith, but there's many different churches. That, that's, that's how you have to look at it. 
yes, the government has responsibility, but the Catholic Church oversaw this, whatever the given internal structure is. And that is why Indigenous leaders and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has demanded, as one of its key calls to action, that the Pope have a public and formal apology for the Church's um, role. The Pope has not done that. Will the Pope come to Canada? There's been six years since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and formally apologized for the church's role. Pope Benedict in 2009 expressed regret and sorrow for residential schools when he met the group of First Nations delegates in Rome. Pope Francis himself uh, has made uh, an apology to uh, Indigenous people in South and North America when he was in Bolivia. It was uh, well received. And he spoke about colonialism. He talked about the, the violation of human rights historically by Catholics in different capacities. And he, he made and he offered an apology to Indigenous people and asked for their forgiveness. So that's where, that's where Pope Francis is coming from. Respectfully, I, 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 because I'm, I'm talking to Indigenous leaders and I've heard them all. In, when Pope Benedict met privately with members of, as you know, um, uh, indigenous leaders in Canada, including Phil Fontaine, uh, then the national chief of the Assembly of First Nations. It was in private, and he never apologized. Uh, why is it so difficult to get a public and formal apology from the Pope on the residential schools? Well, as you know, uh, three years ago, the Holy Father did not say that he would not offer an apology. What he did say and he also said he was open to coming to Canada at an opportune time. He never said he wouldn't come to Canada. Again, Archbishop, respectfully, it's been six years since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That meet. It's been six years to arrange a meeting or a visit. It hasn't happened. And, and it seems like you're, you're starting on first base when, just speaking to Indigenous leaders, they don't think they need more dialogue. The evidence is there. And I'll give you an opportunity to explain this. The Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement in 2007 uh, meant that the Catholic entities were obligated to put $25 million towards reconciliation program. They didn't even get up to $4 million. None, not, so $3.8 million was paid. Now, sir, a lot of people are wondering, for an organization that is valued at hundreds of billions of dollars, why didn't the church even pay the full amount of the $25 million that the settlement requires? What does that tell people? What does that tell uh, survivors? Number one, I don't think I can go into detail about that particular uh, $25 million fundraising. There are actually three components to that, to what I understand. There were problems with that whole process along the way. And, you know, I'll tell you something, Evan, that the bishops were not happy at all with the way it turned out. They were very disappointed by the way this turned out. So something was flawed in that whole process. Now we're re-looking at that. I do think that you should look at this as something that needs to be revisited. Just before I let you go, sir, and, and I do appreciate your time, um, many Indigenous survivors, communities, and leaders uh, are, you're the first voice we've heard about this at, at a, such a senior level in the church uh, in Canada. You know, since this discovery at Merivale, um, they've asked for the Pope's public apology. Will you, as the Archbishop, publicly apologize for the church and the order's role in the residential schools? I certainly apologize for the way Catholics behaved historically in this situation, absolutely. We all feel very bad about it because we know that not only are Indigenous people traumatized by this, once again, especially those that attended residential schools, but uh, Indigenous people in general are affected by this.
but even outside of that, I think Canadians in general are, are definitely affected by this and, and disturbed by it. So I'm very sad about this, you know, and in my capacity as an Archbishop in Winnipeg, I certainly would offer an apology to Indigenous people for the actions of Catholics in the past over these matters. Well, we appreciate you joining us, Archbishop Richard Daniel. Thank you so much. You're welcome. When we come back, a racist insult? Should the Minister of Crown and Indigenous Services, Carolyn Bennett, resign after sending a note to Jody Wilson-Raybould that Raybould considered racist? The Scrum is next, and our special guest will be the former Justice Minister, now Independent MP, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Stay right here with Question Period. One of the Liberal government's most visible faces on reconciliation with Indigenous people is now apologizing. The Crown Indigenous Affairs Minister Carolyn Bennett sent a text to independent MP Jody Wilson-Raybould, remember she used to be the Liberals' Justice Minister, who had tweeted a call on the Prime Minister to do more about reconciliation instead of just jockeying for an election. In response, Bennett sent Jody Wilson-Raybould a one-word question. Pension? What does that mean? Well, the implication is that Wilson-Raybould was concerned she wouldn't get to serve her full six years in Parliament, which allows her to qualify for an MP's pension if an election is called before October. Wilson-Raybould, who was the first Canadian Indigenous Attorney General, tweeted a screenshot of Bennett's text saying, this reflects the notion that Indigenous peoples are lazy and only want money. It shows disregard and disdain and disrespect for Indigenous peoples. She called it racist. An hour later, Bennett publicly apologized, saying that she let interpersonal dynamics get the better of me and said an insensitive and appropriate comment, which I deeply regret and shouldn't have done. Despite the apology, Minister Bennett is now facing calls for her resignation, including from the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. So, can she survive as the minister? And does she still have the credibility to do the job? And how important will Indigenous issues be in a potential fall election? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Scrum, Stephanie Levitz, a reporter with the Toronto Star. Of course, Joyce Napier, CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. And our special guest this round is independent MP and the former Justice Minister and Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Great to have everybody here. Uh, look, this has been one of the toughest weeks, and there are very, lots of tough weeks ahead. Uh, let me just start with you, Jody Wilson-Raybould, obviously your former Regional Chief, uh, former Justice Minister, um, 215 remains in Kamloops, 751 now in Saskatchewan, and more to come. In your view, you called out the Trudeau government for, for, for needing to take action. What action needs to happen now? Well, I, I mean, definitely action needs to be taken now. If there is ever a time, it is recognizing the horrific reality that continues to unfold in terms of the discovery of remains at former residential schools. What has to happen now? Um, action needs to happen now. Of course, um, governments need to recognize, acknowledge, and follow the lead of Indigenous communities in terms of their path to healing. But governments and the federal government has to take action, do what they mm -hmm. promise to do, change laws, change policies, change how they practice, recognize that there is systemic racism that exists in its institutions, and, and change. The Prime Minister needs to do what he promised to do on February the 14th of 2018 and make transformative change in with a relationship with Indigenous peoples. Yeah, Steph, uh, not just 2018, 2015, 
Justin Trudeau said this was the most important file in his government. How has he done? And, and I've spoken to some Indigenous leaders. They've said on some he's done really well, on some there's more work done. What does what this new discovery, how does it recast the light on this file, this issue? How it recasts the light on this file, potentially, Evan, is that for the first time, and perhaps tragically so, we're seeing Canadians themselves, beyond those um, in First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities, really truly wake up to the horror of the residential school system. And the question now becomes, are Canadians writ large willing to translate that into political pressure on the government to act? The Liberal government is a reactive government. There are certain things they will do proactively. I mean, they set out to answer the calls of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission when they were elected, but truthfully, they, they like all political parties, react to political pressure. So if we want to see change in this country, the question now becomes, it's up to you Canadians. Do you accept this? Do you accept this as the country that we live in? And if you don't, it is up to you to send that message to your elected member of parliament, no matter which party they are, and push the government for action. This has to be a whole of Canada response, to borrow a phrase. It can't just rest on the laurels of our elected officials. We have to drive that change if Canadians truly want it. Uh, Joyce, weigh, weigh in on the impact of this. I mean, every country, you know, event, sometimes it's a war, sometimes it's a law, sometimes it's an event can be a kind of a turning point in the story of a country. I f it kind of feels like we're at one of those. The only change that happened in the last two months is what Stephanie said. We can no longer be dismissive as a country. We can no longer look the other way. Um, any of us who are parents can understand the deep pain, the maddening pain uh, that people may have felt, would have felt, and still feel today uh, with just the memory of these disappeared children, these children that were torn from the arms of their parents uh, into these horrific schools um, for reasons that we understand perhaps a little bit better now, but uh, that are inexplicable. We talk about the politics of this, and Steph, you mentioned it, because we're probably heading into an election, but Jody Wilson-Raybould, there are calls, for example, from the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs for Minister Carolyn Bennett to resign over a text she sent you last week. Has she lost credibility to be the Crown Indigenous Minister? Should she resign? Where are you now on that? Well, I, I mean, I would, I, her word to me was insulting, particularly given that it was the first word that she's um, sent me via text since December of 2018, not to mention that this came on the heels or was in advance of what we knew was going to be a significant, horrific announcement of 751 bodies that were found in Kalos' First Nation. Um, you know, I think uh, that the, the minister needs to reflect on what she said in that her instinctive response was to send me a message like that. This is about Indigenous peoples. This is about human rights. Enough of systemic racism. Enough of denying rights. We have to act now. And if she um, is not up for that job, she needs to actually um, really think about where she's at. And in particular, the Prime Minister needs to think about whether or not he has confidence in a Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations that responds to a proud Indigenous person, um, not just me, but right across the country. And what does the relationship mean to her? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh they, some of them, like Minister Miller, said that there, this had to do with some kind of interpersonal relationship with you. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, 
I, I, I take some issue with the interpersonal relationship. That is spin. That is deflection. I don't have an interpersonal relationship with Minister Bennett. And I know that many media have been talking about that we were at odds with each other. The only at odds we were with each other was I wanted to fulfill the promises that this government has made um, and not acted upon for almost six years now. On just on the political side, uh, let me bring in you, Steph. How do these issues play for the Liberals and the Conservatives uh, in what could be a federal election very soon. It goes back to the point perhaps I was raising before, Evan, the extent to which the folks that are within that party want to press for change. A lot of them, when Aaron O'Toole and some of the other members of his party, they take up this cancel culture narrative, it's a way to get some attention to them. They're struggling mightily to get attention among Canadians. It's attention getting this thing, but they also believe it. The question then becomes, what's the other I don't know, their shoe for them, because they say they're committed to reconciliation as well. They say that they want to advance the relationship between the government of Canada led by their party and Indigenous mm. Canadians. So what do they have to offer them in terms of building that relationship if what they're also doing when they say things about tearing down Sir John A or canceling, speaking up against canceling Canada, in effect it amounts to poking them in the eye. So I don't know if Aaron O'Toole can bridge these two things. I mean, it's interesting. He's got a number of Indigenous Canadians who I think are looking at running for the party in the next election. Will they be able to shape some of that mindset? Will they be able to tone down some of what he's saying? Or does he feel he even needs to? Uh, Jordy Wilson-Raybould, thank you so much for joining us today. I know thank Joyce you. and Steph are going to stay with us. Uh, we're going to dig a little deeper into the looming federal election. Many signs point to it very soon. What are the battle lines being drawn and what should you be paying attention to right now? We'll dig into that next on Question Period. Stay with us. Welcome back. Okay, it's time to look ahead and with Parliament rising for the summer, all eyes are on the timing for the next federal election. Will Canadians be headed to the polls later this summer? or early fall, well, according to the latest Nanos research poll, 27% oppose an election now, 22% support one, 100% just want to get outside and have a good time in, after a two-dose summer, but that's a different poll. So what are the battle lines as parties prepare to fight an election? What will the ballot box questions be? Who's poised to win now? Everything could change. The scrum is back to look at the electoral tea leaves. Uh, Stephanie Levis from the Toronto Star is back. Joyce Napier, our bureau chief here at CTV News in Ottawa, is back. And we welcome from the Globe and Mail, Marika Walsh. All right, uh, everybody, welcome. Marika, you're the latest edition. I'll start with you. Um, what are the battle lines as Parliament rises and we're preparing to, to hit the summer? Um, what are the key battle lines and how are the parties kind of positioning themselves for what will be an election imminently? I think, Evan, the positioning that we saw, that we will see going forward is the positioning that we saw with what was voted through the House on those dying days in the House of Commons this past week. And that was the Liberals pushing through the conversion therapy ban, changes to climate change targets and how they are enforced. And of course, the supports in the budget bill for early childhood education as well as pandemic support. So I think that clearly shows you how the Liberals are looking at positioning themselves, especially in contrast to the Conservatives. And that will really be their message going forward if they do decide to pull the trigger and go to the polls. Yeah, the, the, the financial ducks are lined up, Joyce. And they got the budget implementation bill, so they're $100 billion over three years. That's kind of a roadmap for their election. What are the battle lines you're looking for in terms of how they're all positioning themselves? 
Well, we kind of know what the liberals are going to do. We saw their budget. We've heard their rhetoric in the last few weeks saying, you know, so difficult to govern as a minority with the conservatives, always toxic environment, how they're stopping everything, everything progressive we're trying to do. So we get it. Uh, we understand that that will be their, you know, sort of excuse to go to an election that, you know, perhaps uh, we really may not need, but the governments, you know, minority governments always want to go back to the, to the people for a majority, and they look at the polls, the liberals, and they see that majority is, you know, so close, they're eyeing that, and it's so tempting. So my bet is they go earlier rather than later. Uh, telling Canadians who will be basking in this sort of two-shot summer. Uh, people will be, um, you know, our pollster Nick Nanos calls this the vaccine halo. People will be in a good mood. They'll be happy. They'll be positive. They'll be optimistic. Hey, the polls are telling you you're ahead. People will be optimistic. Looks like a good season for an election. Yeah, okay, so so you're right. I mean, they may want it. I don't know who wants to read the budget in the first summer we've had <laughs> post the vaccine. Uh, that's not the book on my beach reading list, but we've already read it. Uh, let me go to Steph Levitt. Uh, Steph, um, it's more, I, I get, as Nick Nano says, that the pandemic may be the ballot box question. Um, but look, you got, look, what are you watching for? There's Quebec is a battleground, and that plays out differently than what's playing out, maybe the, the rise of the NDP in some parts of Ontario or lower mainland BC. What are you looking for, and that may give us a sense of what's coming? So one thing I think is the fact that the word progressive is going to be the key buzzword in this election, and you see it in two ways already playing out. The Liberals have used it repeatedly when they talk about their progressive agenda. And then on the flip side, you see the Conservatives trying to frame this coming election as a fight between their party and basically a progressive coalition on the left. They've used that term coalition now. They're trying to lump all the parties in together. And for both sides, what it really comes down to is a post-pandemic vision for the country. I don't think this is a referendum on how well the Liberal government handled the pandemic because that's the halo effect, right? That's the people saying, well, I'm, I'm two-dosed now. But then you've got the same people with two doses saying, okay, but where's my kid going to get a job? And can I afford a house in the suburbs? And what about this thing? And what about climate change? And what about all of these issues? And it's going to be about what about? What is your vision for this country? And like you say, Evan, there's a lot of differing regional dynamics at play. I mean, you could look at, let's just take the Atlantic provinces would be one great place where you have an ascendant Green Party at the provincial level. That's going to potentially open up some space for the federal Greens to maybe even pick up more seats than the last time. You have Quebec, where the Bloc Québécois is fighting fiercely. Um, and one of the reasons, minority governments are great for the Bloc. They have a ton of power. They have a ton of influence. They can really deliver for the people of Quebec. That's going to be interesting. You're going to have the West and the question, big questions in the West about whether Aaron O'Toole, with his plan, you know, his sort of, sort of carbon taxi plan, is going to alienate a bunch of Western voters and send them into the arms of Western separatists. So there's a lot of different regional dynamics here that each party is going to have to really address as they seek this momentum to get enough seats to potentially form a majority or at minimum have influence in the House of Commons. I like when you get technical about policies, sort of carbon tax, a very technical <laughs> term there. Okay, let's go, yeah. to, uh, let's go to challenges because, look, parties love to talk about opportunities because hope is the only oxygen they seem to breathe. Marika, challenges for the Liberals, Conservatives, and NDP. I think the challenges for the Liberals are that there seems to be this kind of mindset that this election, if it is called, is a done deal for the Liberals. I think that is a risky way to go into an election. It sets up all kinds of blinders 
that is not what you want to be going into an election with. So I think that for them, that's a big risk. I think for Aaron O'Toole, it's clearly he needs to work on his own personal image and his own personal brand. His favorables are not doing well at all. And for the NDP, I think, you know, we clearly see them doing much better in places like B.C., but they need much more than that. And so Jagmeet Singh will need to, I think, clearly show differences between himself and the Liberals and then also convince people somehow that voting for them is not what the Liberals call a vote for the Conservatives, because I think that is a weapon that the Liberals pull out in many elections, and the NDP don't always have an effective line against that. Yeah, the vote split message. Joyce. Uh, I, I think the challenge for the Conservatives will be Aaron O'Toole. Uh, he's not well known. Uh, in the House, we have seen that in the past while, that he votes one way and his, uh, and his caucus votes another way. Um, so will he be able to unite? It's a, it's a pretty fractured party. And they really, the, when they do well, the Conservatives, is when they're united behind a strong leader. Uh, that's when in the past, and we've seen that, the Conservatives have done very well. So he's their biggest challenge. Steph, last word on all this. What's your thought on it? The pandemic is going to throw up a ton of challenges to the traditional political campaign, and that's something all the parties are going to have to contend with, especially when it comes to Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh, who are outstanding retail campaigners. You get them in a room, you get them in front of a crowd, they can whip up the energy, they can whip up the fervor and get people feeling really good. We don't know if Aaron O'Toole has that kind of charisma yet because he hasn't had a chance to try and roll it out. Are we really going to see a campaign where votes are won or lost on Zoom screens and digital debates? digital events. It's going to come down to the federal election debates. Those are going to be more important than they probably have been in any recent election. Okay, i got to leave it there. Uh, Marika Walsh, Stephanie Levitz, Joyce Napier, uh, great. you three are superb as always. I really thank you for always coming in uh, with your analysis and your thoughts. I want to thank our viewers for your concern and for tuning in each week. We are taking a short break. If there's a federal election, we'll be back very, very soon. I'm not sure if you want to see us that soon or not. I'll leave that to the pollsters. It's been a very difficult year and a difficult week and difficult days. Uh, but your commitment and courage has meant a lot to all of us. Uh, we'll continue to cover all the news right here on CTV News. We thank you. We'll be back very soon with lots more question period. Doing what you want us to do. Go get some answers. Thank you. I hope you get to hug your loved ones soon with that two doses. That's question period. We'll see you soon.